they are right, I think in some ways, they, meaning the people that you would say are not Christ followers, they don't think that we are thinkers. Are we thinkers? Do we think about things? Do you think of, do you know why you believe what you believe? Do you believe what you believe because of what Aunt Betty told you? When you went over and spent time with her? You believe what? You believe because mom and daddy sat down and told you the truth one time and finally you just said at nine years old, that's it. I believe that. You know who Francis Schaeffer is? Francis Schaeffer is not a, I wouldn't call him a modern day theologian, but he would be considered a a leading apologist in evangelical Christendom. He wrote many phenomenal books. He wrote actually a book called The Christian Manifesto. And in that book, he talks about Two things that are going on in our world. We have people that think along the lines of the Judeo-Christian ethic or the Judeo-Christian thinkers, which is this. Now, think about this. (laughs) In this world, in the Judeo-Christian form or Judeo-Christian mindset, the Judeo-Christian worldview is this. The final reality of this mindset is an infinite creator God. Okay, The final reality of that mindset is an infinite creator God. That's what these people that are of this worldview believe. The final reality is an infinite creator God. I say that to you because remember that whatever the statement is I'm giving to you, there's many ramifications that come off of this statement. Right? Then he talks about secular humanism where he would say this. It's a little longer. Let me read it to you since I know you can't read in the back. The final reality for this view is this, is energy, material, and in some mixture or form which has existed forever, which has taken place in its present shape by chance. So then we may say that some of our folks would you would see maybe categories under here, and maybe one of those would be evolution. Correct? But there are even many of you today in here who would call yourselves Bible-believing, born-again Christ followers who more than likely have a mixture of these two views. This view here isn't your only view. You may possibly believe that maybe the world did come to be by chance. Now, here's the question. The question is, what are the ramifications of each view? What are the ramifications of this view? If I am here and I exist and I'm talking to you about existentialism right now, as I exist on this earth, if I believe that I'm here by chance, what are the ramifications of that? The ramifications, one of the main ramifications of that is is that I don't have an outside God. I become what? God. I'm God. I'm here by chance. I can make my own rules up. I can do what I want to do. I can kill babies. 
If I'm of this view, there's many, there's a lot of rationale that stems off this thought. It's important for me to frame this for you. Because this view over here to the left is obviously the the, the biblical view. It believes in things. It believes this, that the Bible is our authority. Who's the authority here? We are. We are the authority. Now, what I want to tell you, but I don't want to get into a big old philosophy class. Good grief. There you go, Ash. I said it. I don't want to get into a big old philosophy class, but I do want to tell you that it's important for you, you to understand these things because, because the way, the, what has happened to our world is you could really go back and see these two, two systems, if you will, at war against each other. The many things that are happening in our world from abortion to, to immorality to our, our country looking like Sodom and Gomorrah to on and on and on and on come from somewhere. Think with me. They come from a base. They come from a worldview. They come from people that decided probably 30, 40 years ago in our colleges across the country, we had many professors that had this baseline as a worldview in many colleges, in many Christian colleges. And if they have that baseline and that worldview, there's many things that trickle off of that. And there are many things here. Boy, oh boy, are there many things that trickle off of this worldview, which is this Judeo-Christian understanding of life, where the Bible is our authority. We're not our authority any longer. It's important to give you that base as we go into Acts 17 today. So go ahead and go there. I'm going to read out of the ESV today, the English Standard Version of the Bible, because I love what it has to say in Acts 16 about this, this certain scripture that I want to pick on. For those of you that haven't been with us, we've been studying through the book of Acts. We're um, really it's been it's been a good study. It's been it's been good to see what's going on here with God's design in the early church. And right here, what we have is we have Paul that is now he has left Philippi. He's traveling. He's continuing to. This is his second missionary journey. He's continuing to travel through the country to plant the churches that God has had, wants him to plant. He goes to these cities. He gathers people. He does something that he's going to do here. He walks into the synagogue first and starts telling everybody about the gospel. Starts telling everybody about the Lord. So we start here in 17. And look what it says in verse 17, starting at verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. And this is the obviously the letters, the epistles, First and Second Thessalonians. So God obviously had a, a, a uh, an intention in mind of planting a church here in Thessalonica. This is Paul's first visit, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Verse two, and Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, look what it says with them. Oh, there, he reasoned with them. From the scriptures, which means Paul took on the role that I just took on with you a minute ago 
of talking with you about why we think the way we think and why in the world have we ever come here? Why are we here today as human beings? What's happened? Let me tell you what's happened. Let me tell you what God says that's happened in the scriptures. So he's reasoning with them from the scriptures. Look what it says in verse 3. Explaining, and he says, and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Good job, leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. Poor Jason. Shouting. This is what I love this verse. Shouting, it says here, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. What does yours say in the NIV? What does it say? Somebody help me with the NIV. Read it. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Okay, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. That's the accusation. Thank you, Hillary, for helping me. None of my other friends loved me enough. And Jason has received him. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And boy, and by the way, let me make sure you understand that statement right there. The gospel does say that there is another king, doesn't it? The Bible says there's another king, and the king isn't this one. The king is this one. If the king is that one... That's massive ramifications on my life. Okay? And the people in the city's authority, city's authorities were disturbed when they heard these things and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. Jason had to pay some money for this whole deal. Then verse 10. So the brothers have to go. It says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And then look what it says there in verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And I'll tell you what that word means in a little bit. They received the word with all eagerness. Listen now, look at They received the word with all eagerness, examining the, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So what I want to talk with you about is we have two sections here in 17 where Paul goes in to Thessalonica and he reasons with them from the scriptures. Then he goes to Berea and he talks about the scriptures with them to the point where they actually said, I don't want to take you at face value what you say. I want to actually go home and read the book and see if it says what you just said. So I want to talk you with you this morning real quick. I only got two. And I talk with you about this a lot, but I think it's, it's crucial, especially as we talk to many of the people in this younger generation that God seems to bring to Midtown. This baseline, this understanding of the role of Scripture in our lives. Now, I recognize completely that as I talk about this, many of you who have grown up in the church, and when we even begin to talk about this, you're already anesthetized. You know, the shot's gone in. Well, I heard this a billion times. 
right? Memorized all the verses, been to all the Bible camps, had all the stars up on my wall, whatever you did, all the flannel graph. Well, you know, that's what it was for me. You know, all the, all the script, you know, you got to know the, you know. And so now today, actually, here's what's interesting. In your cultures, we have conversations. Let me make an accusation. I believe that many, much of your culture, this younger culture, is fairly biblically illiterate. Illiterate meaning, I'm not so sure that many of you have biblical categories for why you do what you do. And I say that in complete love to you. I'm not saying that to guilt you and to kick you in the fanny and out the the church door. I'm just saying something that I think is a truthful observation. And what should that mean to you? Maybe some of you don't even really know what you believe and why you believe it. Have you read the Word of God to know what it may say, to know what it does say? It says uh, in, this, in one book I read this week, it said this, most, most Americans have at least an intellectual assent when it comes to God and Jesus Christ and angels. Listen to this. They believe that the Bible is a good book filled with important stories and good moral lessons and some helpful life principles. Good stories, good moral lessons, and some helpful life principles. Is that what we believe? Is that all this is? Is that all that is to you? Husbands, do you, do you know that God has much to say to you in how to treat your wife in Ephesians 5? Do you know, wives, that God has much to say to you in how to treat your husbands in Ephesians 5? The Reformers had a concept called solo scriptura. Solo scriptura basically meant this. It is the doctrine that the Bible is the only infallible or inerrant authority for Christian faith. And it is. But it's that view. In fact, many apologists today that would call themselves Christian, part of the Judeo-Christian thinking, would say this. What the Bible says is actually real. It's our reality. It explains our existentialism. It's why we're here. It explains why we're here, where we're going, what's happened. Do you follow? These this folks here not necessarily would believe that. Okay. What's the issue? The issue here as we think about this, I've been trying to think about this this week. See if this makes any 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 sense to you. Why is it that we have such an issue with this? You know, as Paul comes and he's talking here, he says he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Well, he obviously would would believe that the scriptures then have authority. He's not giving his opinion as much as he's going to at that point. He was going to the Old Testament scriptures. So he had some baseline in the truth that he was using. What's happened? What's the problem? Why, Why wouldn't we kind of look at this a little bit more like that? Would it be true? Would you agree with this? Most of us desire experience more than we desire knowledge. Would you would you agree with that? We prefer choices to absolutes. Cuz in obviously in this line of thinking there are absolutes. There are over here we would probably be able to put well there's choices and isn't that true in your culture? If it's good for you, it's okay. It's not good for me. Okay? 
Okay, because I don't want you to not like me and go out for coffee with me next week. I don't want, God forbid I could tell you, I want to die. There's, there's a truth, there's truth here, right? And I understand some of that. I understand that we want to be friends, but is that actually leaving kind of a culture out there of people that believe, well, it's kind of your choice if you decide it's true? Is there absolutes for you? It's a good question for you to consider. Is there absolutes? Are there, for instance, are there moral absolutes for you in your life? Do you have, do you have a framework for that? Is homosexuality okay? What does the Bible have to say about this? And if the Bible has to say something that I don't agree with, then what do I do? Well, then I maybe is it okay for me to live over here a little bit then? Because I don't like that absolute. If the Bible says it's not, it's not good for you to have sexual relations outside of marriage, well, I, yeah, but I love her. She's gorgeous, and I'm horny. Hmm. Right. Right. What's the absolute? What's the framework? Is it true what this author is saying? Is he saying that we embrace our preferences or we embrace choices over absolutes? We embrace our preferences rather than truths? And isn't it true that we live in that society today? We seek comfort rather than growth. I remember when I was little, we had a song. Let me sing it for you. The B-I-B-L-E. You know it? Who knows it? Raise your hand. Okay, not as many as I thought. It goes like this. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the... Excellent job, choir. I stand alone on the word. I don't. I don't stand alone on the word of God. I stand alone on my opinion. I stand alone on your opinion. I stand alone on what the cool author's saying. interesting after Paul preached this word um, to them here in, in Acts 17. It's interesting that it says, I love it when it says the riots began to happen, the hostility began to go on. I want you to understand something that you need to connect the dots on something. Anytime that the gospel is preached, especially in your own heart and you hear it, get ready for the hostility. Get ready for the trouble. Because it all upsets the whole apple cart, babe. It inverts it all. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Because the truth in many times, when we think about the truth, follow with me now. When we think about the truth, in many times truth is hostile. Truth is cutting. The Bible says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it, it will cut through the bone and marrow. Right? But look there, verse 11, when it says, but the Bereans, it says, we're no, more noble-minded. Let's continue to talk about Scripture a little bit. More noble mean it may say more noble-minded in your, in your version of the Scripture there. Meaning, noble means meaning generous, free from prejudice. Now, you really got to hear this with me this morning. Free from prejudice and fair-minded. This would be an observation that I would make about uh, my young friends that I love so much that I think that many of you have. 
And it's, you are open to teaching. You want to be taught. You want to learn. And that was what was going on here in Acts in Acts 17. They received the word with, it says, all eagerness examining the scriptures. And I guess I would ask us, in the quiet moments on the tour bus, or in the quiet moments in our bedroom, or in our quiet moments in life, whatever we do, do the scriptures play a role in our lives so that we would have kind of this, this is different for me as I see these people, I see this kind of this, this is this passion that they have. What do you have for me, Lord? What do you, I want to see if this is true. Right? I talked to one guy last week and he says, well, he said, a lot of times I don't feel really passionate about reading the Word. And so if I don't, I'm not going to do it. Oh. Well, what? There's many days I don't feel like being married. Maybe I just won't do it. Wouldn't that be great? Call Shelly up. Shelly, I'm just not going to be married today. Just one day. Give me a day. Or if it relates to my Bible, give me a week. Right? We're bored. We're cynical. Especially if we've grown up in the church. We've heard it before. That's true. Like. But when I read this, this like, in this is like really. I'm going to show you a side here that's really ugly. See if you if you can relate. Because when I read this, it says, "This is the word of God." It says this. It says, "But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law." Now the works of the flesh are evident. Now the works of the flesh are evident because the Bible says there's flesh, right? There's this upper room and lower room. Spirit and flesh still reside in my body. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Here's the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity. Then, listen to this one. Sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife and jealousy and fits of rage, fits of anger and rivalries and dissensions and divisions and envy and drunkenness and orgies and things like these i warned you and then he says but the fruit of the spirit and he goes on to say love joy peace are you kidding me in reality i want to be sensual If most of us were to admit it, we would like to completely involve ourselves with sexual immorality. We deal with these with terrible temptations. All of us do here. We suffer greatly from it, don't we? And a lot of the problem is, is that nobody may know that, right? And that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying that as you read the word here, there's this, there's this peace that's coming that you need to understand that the word is coming along to say to you now, I am king. I am your authority. What I have to say is righteous and true. And I wouldn't even go so far as to have to say this. What I have to say will ultimately be for your good. It may make you suffer even more. And by the way, if I follow that line of apologetic, the apologetic then would be you're the center of again. Or your obedience is good so that you can feel good about something. No. 
This is about what God has said, and God has set up his ways in which we think that are for his glory and his glory alone. When we read that scripture and it talks about immorality and envy and dissension and jealousy, when we read that, what we need to do is we need to be quiet in front of that word, and we need to look at that and go, God, is that me? Are you speaking to me? Because I'm envious. Because I'm jealous. Because I'm a sensual individual who finds it very difficult to live alone and not have a community of people around me that have no idea what I'm doing. Maybe that's your case. Right? It's important for us to think like this as we consider the Scriptures. But this this idea of the Bereans here, there's this receiving nature to their lives. This certain willingness, hello, this certain willingness, this certain passion to be taught, confronted by the truth. Let me ask you a question, and I'd like you to answer it, please. Why are we, why are we not teachable like these Bereans? Paul's, Paul walks in there and says, they, these are a fair-minded people, meaning they want to really learn. They want to be taught. Why aren't we more like that? What's happened to us? Talk, talk to me. What do you think? Self-centered. What? Self-centered. Self-centered. What's that? Conflicting, Conflicting teachings. When was the last time, when I, I challenge you on this all the time, when was the last time you asked somebody to say something difficult to you? Think about that. Hey, listen, okay, I'm really doing, going through this with my boyfriend, and I'm really struggling about it, and I just, I need, you to, I, need, I need you to speak into that. I'm just using it as an example of truth in our lives, the role that truth plays in our lives. We have a natural aversion to it, do we not? Husbands, when was the last time we looked at our wife and said, Honey, I, I, I need you to tell me where I, you know, my three top wrongs. <laughs> Come on. Nobody likes that. What's happened to us? See, the scripture, what, it ha- is, what the scriptures really is, is a place for us to be indicted, really, to be convicted. And let me say this to you, my friends, today. I'd realize... And completely recognize that there's a many there's many people in the audience today who are deeply hurting with what with the issues that are going on in your life, whatever they may be. And I want you to know that the Word of God says a lot of things about his father his father's loves for his children. And I want you to know that um, the Lord today says in His Scriptures that He is your King. The Lord is the shade on my right hand. I will look to the mountains for where my help comes from. Remember, your help comes from the Lord. Your help doesn't come from medication you're going to take. Your help actually doesn't even come from the people that you're going to be in community with today at lunch. Your help comes from a mighty Savior who died on a cross, who atoned for your sins. His name is Jesus. And he's familiar with your suffering, the Bible says. Hebrews. He knows it. 
He's very acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53. He knows it. He's right with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Take hope in that today. The last thing I'm going to end on, please indulge me just for a few more minutes. Thank you. Look there in 17. Look there it says in 6 of 17. I'll, I'll read it out of here. I just love this translation. And when they could not find... When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city's authorities. And this is, this is what the accusation was. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. The idea of turn there actually means to stir or unsettle. See, the power of the gospel at this point was actually beginning to revolutionize lives in, in the world and communities. It was throwing open prison doors. It was causing people to, to do things that they had never done before. It was causing them to care in a completely different way for one another. The gospel was working. It was moving out in powerful ways. And I want you to understand something and try to follow along with me that the very essence of the gospel, the very, the very energy of the gospel is to turn things upside down. And when you hear that from me, I want you to know that the very essence of the gospel is for your life and my life to be turned around and turned upside down. Everything. That's what the gospel does. It stirs it up. It unsettles old values and security. While you live in a world that says you can find your security and your success in the school you go to, in your money, in your social status. That's an all a man-centered understanding of life where God says to you, you're going to find your security and your identity in me. The gospel is not in the business of merely improving our lives and allowing us to go to heaven. It does not merely encourage us to be good little boys and girls. Its, its design is to invert everything and to change everything about us. Its design is to radically change and transform our lives from A to Z. And many of you have heard that before, and I would ask you the question, and I ask it of me today, why, what needs to be transformed, and why are there so many stuck areas in the cement of my life that seemed I can't seem to get these areas? Jesus, to transform these areas. It's like they're stuck, right? The gospel does need to cause that kind of trouble for us. We do need to be in pain about many things that are going on in our lives. And by the way, I think some, some, some of us, many of us need to feel guilty about some of the things that are going on in our lives. And we take that guilt, we take that guilt to the cross. Let me give you an example of this gospel causing trouble. There was a young lady who came to me this last week and she said that her parents had raised her in a very fearful environment. And they said things like, if you, if you don't do this, you need to know that your dad could, could possibly leave us, leave our family. That's what, that's what her mom said to her. Or if you do that, you need to know that if you were to go out and have sex with your boyfriend, or that would devastate me so much that I, I might die the day you told me that news. 
Can you imagine the weight that that would put on somebody? And as I was talking to her, she's been on a beautiful journey. Get this now. She's been on a beautiful journey of what God has done for her through His Son, Jesus, that's more than just getting her a ticket into heaven, but gives her an identity as a woman and as a daughter of a great king who now is giving her the power to live in her the things that she's feared the most, which has been this parental relationship. And she actually looked at me and she goes, it's just new for me. She goes, I'm starting to get it. I'm starting to get the fact that I don't have to be a woman of fear. That the cross is for me. Did you hear what I said to you? That the cross is for me. It's not for, it doesn't have to necessarily be thinking right now of my neighbor and everybody else. It's for me. And the ramifications of the cross absolutely in the most beautiful way have wrecked my life. I don't have to be a woman of fear. And the first thing I thought of was I asked her the question. I says, guess what? I said, that's going to bring trouble. And she said, yeah, it is. And I said, tell me the trouble it's going to bring. I'm kind of interested at this point. She goes, well, it's going to bring a really a lot of trouble because I'm going to have to have a conversation with my mom and dad, aren't I? Because the way that they've understood the paradigm of living is that in this fear and understanding of, of life, they can in some way manipulate and control their daughter to behave right under this terrible fear-based moralistic code that has destroyed her. And she's going to stand up and say, that's not what it's about. That's going to bring trouble to that family. That's what the Bible talks about with the gospel. Are you ready for the gospel to bring trouble to turn even your heart I'm not even talking to you about your neighborhood. I'm talking about the neighborhood of your heart. To bring trouble? To turn it upside down? Such a good message for me to hear. Even for me to hear my voice in that. There's so many things in my life I don't want turned upside down. I just don't want it. But the Lord in the scriptures moves in with this and he says, Now, this is the authority that you live under. Joel, stop the vacillation. This is the authority. Good word for us today? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Your word means a lot to us today. And I know that I need to hear this and I need to hear about my baseline. Because many times I can live a life where my baseline's me. Me, 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 me. I'm kind of a uh, theological narcissist. And I, I confess. And I pray for my brothers and sisters, even today. I pray, I pray that your word, you would just continue to do what you do so well with our lives. And just continue to bring us truth. Through your word, through our brothers and sisters. Continue to speak to us as we pray to you. Lord, we're such a needy people. We have a real tendency to wander in the wilderness. And uh, we pray that you'd really help us today. In your name, amen.